Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. How do banks, mortgage lenders, and credit card companies decide who they're going to say yes to? The answer lies in your credit score, and the FT's money mentor Lindsay Cook is here to provide answers to all of your questions about how this works. Contactless payments on London Transport. As a report suggests we should be able to tap and pay all over the UK, Transport for London have popped in to share some frankly staggering statistics about those who pay on plastic. And finally, Bobby Seagull, star of University Challenge and Britain's most famous math teacher, joins us to explain why as a mathematician he's annoyed by British football stadium signs. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's personal finance editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. When it comes to credit, do you think your finances are worthy of a perfect 10? Or are there a few issues lurking around in your financial past? We like to listen to your feedback and a number of you have got in touch recently asking about credit scores and how they work. So I'm joined by Lindsay Cook, the FT's Money Mental columnist, to clear up a few issues. Welcome, Lindsay. Morning. So let's start with the obvious question. What is a credit score? Well, credit rating agencies such as Experian, Equifax and Noddle gather data on what we borrow and how well we pay it back. Mm. And they provide that to lenders and From the information they have, and the more information the better, they can work out roughly whether we're a good risk for borrowing or um, not so good. Okay. How many marks is it possible to get on a credit score? Now, this is really complicated. (laughs) The three biggies, Experian, 999 is the top score, Equifax, 700 is the top score, and Noddle, 710 is the top score. So all different. And how many points would I earn? earning a good salary, let's say, over £100,000? It's irrelevant because that doesn't tell the lender how good you are at paying off loans. We all know people who earn a lot of money but also spend a lot of money. Mm. (laughs) I love how you're looking at me with your evil eye when you say that. But how many points would I get for owning a property worth, say, half a million pounds? Again, the property is irrelevant, although being... At a stable address, i.e. on the voters list for several years, making regular regular mortgage payments would count. OK. What kind of things do show up on my credit record? If you've got credit cards and you pay in full each month, there's a nice little green box for each month. It will show you borrowed, you spent £210 and you paid back £210. Whatever the figures are, every month it will show you how much you pay back. It will 
phone contract, I've got a monthly SIM-only contract, but it shows I pay it off, all £8 of it every month. Utility bills, you should have your names on those. Any kind of loan, really. And, you know, if you've used all the limit of your borrowing, because it shows you, doesn't tell the lender who your accounts are with, so they can't offer you good deals if you're a really good payer. But if you got if you borrowed more than 90% of your credit limit, that makes you a bad deal. Okay, so if I've been refused credit, why might that be? You could be one of the six million invisibles who, and these can be wealthy people, it's not just poor people. They may have worked overseas, they may be uh, living in the private rented sector, divorced spouses sometimes if they haven't had their name on the utility bills. If they've just moved house and they're not on the electoral register, all these things can um, damage your profile. Joint credit cards. If you have your spouse has a main card Mm. and they issue one for you, whatever you spend on it doesn't count because the main card owner will pay make the payments. So that's not proving you're a good payer. It's just proving that the person you're you're married to might be. So if I am refused for credit, can I find out why? The lender should tell you. Some may just say the credit score was too low. And Mm. quite often they do have a limit of, oh, we won't look at anybody under such and such a level. While the lender makes a decision, it is the credit score that often tips you over. Okay. So what if I get my credit report to have a look into this and uh, find that some of the information on there is wrong? It can be a mistake. can be the lender has got something wrong. Um, It can be something that you are unaware of. Every time I do a financial workshop, I'm met by somebody who's had an experience and they've moved mobile phone or they've moved energy company. And in doing so, they've cancelled a direct debit when they thought the thing was over and they've left 12p behind. Really low amounts, Mm. but that can be seen as a default. And if you have that, they won't remove it, but they will allow you to put 200 words of correction on the file and you choose the words etc and that will mitigate so anybody can say oh that was a mistake and it happens with credit cards you think you've paid off the full bill and there's some interest accrued from the time of the statement and you don't even open any other letters or they're on um, on your computer and you don't realize that you owed them £3.43 and that can again be a default. Does checking my credit record affect my credit score in any way? No. The only way it affects it is you look at it and you think, oh, I need to correct that or I should have known about that. You can look at it virtually every week and it doesn't affect your credit score. Could I have been refused because my address is blacklisted? Absolutely not. There isn't a blacklist even. It's you who's got a poor credit score. So the previous owner, resident doesn't affect you. It's your borrowing and paying back history. But if you have had joint loans, such as a mortgage, on your address and the other joint payer is a bad lot, that will tarnish you. Right. Okay. So then you should get into disassociating yourself from them on your credit record. Now, we talked a minute ago about the effect of paying a credit card bill late. How much would that have an effect on an individual's credit score if they did it just once? If it's just once and it is just a little bit late, it probably would be about 130 points 
on the experience scale, I don't know quite how much that would be on the others. So more than a tenth of your score could be, yes. assuming you had the yes. full score, could be evaporated. But if it is something, it's late because you were ill or your flight back was late and you couldn't make the payment or your bank failed to pay your direct debit, ah, you know, there's, there's been yeah. a problem... They've asked for the direct debit and they've said there isn't enough money or whatever. All those can be mitigated and put into your into a correction report. OK. If somebody has a really low credit score because they've made mistakes in the past, how can they build their credit rating back up? First thing, get on the electoral register for where they live. Don't go overdrawn on their bank account. There are things that are credit builder cards. Now, they're expensive. They can charge you up to 40% annually if you don't pay off in full. So if you get a credit builder card, they're likely to only offer you £500 credit anyway in the first place if you have got a bad record. But if you spend money on it and pay it off in full each month, by the end of a year, you probably have a better record. How long will bad information stay on my credit file? Around six years. Asking for a friend, obviously. And in fact, that is one of the questions that comes up most frequently at financial workshops. In fact, I had um, quite a well-paid senior city guy come up to me and say, how long do these things last on your record? And I said, why? Oh, I'm getting married and I need to apply for a mortgage with my bride-to-be and her father-in-law is helping fund the bill. And I left a big gas bill at Oxford when I left and I didn't pay it and I wonder if they're going to find out. Well, it was long enough ago, but he could have found out very easily by doing a credit check. If I want to check my credit score online, how much does it cost? Nothing. Nothing at all. Under the um, General Data Protection Regulation, it's free. Companies may try and sell you a monthly subscription and they do this particularly to people who have got low credit scores and they say they'll help you they'll school you in how to get a better credit score and they say things like oh if you pay your motor insurance uh monthly instead of annually that shows us you can borrow and pay back your reliable and i say it also shows you you're a fool because you're paying much higher than you would if you paid it as a lump sum well quite um if i have a credit card would this improve my chances of getting a mortgage in the future i'm afraid it would because the debit cards don't count. My own son checked out his credit score recently. Previously, he'd got 999 with one of the companies. And he was down, to, it was a different company, but he got one point above average, which he thought was pretty poor. And I talked him through it and he's changed his spending habits. He's now a homeowner, so he doesn't use his credit card because he thinks, oh, I might get a bigger bill and I won't be able to pay it. Sensible, I say. He started using Monzo and Starling and debit cards. And so that, and he, he checked and he hasn't used a credit card for two years. So he's not... He's not au courant in terms of their borrowing records. They haven't got any recent information that he can take on debt and pay it back. So now he's going to buy his petrol with a credit card and see how that goes. And I bet he'll be paying the bill off in full every month. Well, final question. If somebody makes the minimum repayment every month on their credit card, but they're at the top of their credit limit, what are their chances of being accepted for another 0% credit card balance shifting deal? Well, technically, they shouldn't get it because the lenders 
the credit reference agencies like you to only borrow up to 30% of your limit and the lenders want to be safe. But if you pay the minimum every month and there's signs that you do this all the time, you are one of the most profitable customers that the banks can get. So they may actually offer you it. And if you do get an interest-free credit card, pay it off each month, pay the minimum, don't spend unless it says you can spend without incurring interest. Make sure you pay off the full amount within the period and then your credit record will be even better. Well, wow. Thank you so much, Lindsay. I think you've taken us from 0 to 60 in terms of how much we all know about the mystery of credit scoring. But if your question wasn't answered, get in touch with us at money at ft.com. And of course, you can read Lindsay's cover feature, everything you need to know about your credit score online now via ft.com slash money. If you live in London, chances are you've swapped your Oyster card for a bank card to tap and pay at the turnstiles. More than half of all pay-as-you-go journeys in the capital are now made using a contactless bank card or mobile phone, providing a stunning insight into the changing dynamics of our increasingly cashless society. Mike Tuckett, Head of Customer Payments at Transport for London, joins me in the studio today. Welcome, Mike. Hi. So that's not the most staggering statistic about contactless travel in London, is it? No, there's a number. We've obviously thought contactless would be popular with customers because it makes accessing public transport so easy that you know you don't buy a ticket, you don't have to get an Oyster card or anything. You literally just travel and tap a card or mobile phone that you have already and get billed the best value fare for that. But even we were, to be honest, a bit taken aback by just how incredibly popular it has been in London. The statistic that I always find the most amazing is since we launched in 2014, we've seen uh, just over 50 million different cards and mobile phones used. Uh, and every day out there in London, we see typically about another 60 or 70,000 new cards that we've never seen before. And so all the time, new people are coming to the system and the usage is still growing, even today. Uh, so all that adds up to over two and a half billion journeys that have been made by people paying in that way. And as you say, it's now more popular than Oyster. And it's also much, much easier for tourists and people who are visiting the capital to navigate. I mean, one of the statistics that your press office told me was that contactless cards from over 130 countries in the world are now being used on the London transport system. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And it's, it's great because you probably know that you can imagine when you're in a city that you don't know so well, it can be a little bit daunting using the public transport because every city's kind of got its own rules. Londoners kind of know about the Oyster card and know what to do. But people visiting here, it's a bit bewildering and difficult and to be able to say to them you don't worry about that all that just travel we'll sort everything else out we'll give you the best fare it is a fantastic proposition for tourists and obviously for us operating stations like Heathrow and Victoria it, it does really help the flow of people through the station because there's less people having to ask for advice and queue up for the ticket machines. Well you say that Londoners know what they're doing but I have a confession to make here a couple of years ago I got nobbled for a penalty fare at London Gatwick Airport because I thought incorrectly that I could tap and pay at London Bridge to get all the way to the airport. Yeah. So, I mean, all those airports, apart from Heathrow, are outside of Transport for London's uh, zone of control. Uh, In 2016, the Department for Transport allowed us to extend Oyster and Contactless to Gatwick. So that's eased that problem that you encountered. And later this year, they're allowing us to put contactless to Luton Airport as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, because mm. it, it deigns to call itself London Luton. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally understand. And it's a reasonable assumption from people that 
you can use the London pay-as-you-go system there. So we're very happy to be able to extend it there now. And as of last week, you can also use it on the Heathrow Express, although they'd be warned a peak fare can cost up to £25. Now, this week a report has come out suggesting that more of the UK's national train network outside of the capital should follow your lead and embrace tap and pay. Can you see this happening? Yeah, there's, uh, there's no good reason why that shouldn't happen. When we introduced pay-as-you-go in 2004. We promoted the extension of it to the train operating companies, you know, the overland trains in London, and launched that in 2010. Uh, and we've always made it very clear that, you know, we think there's huge benefits for customers from this system. And we'd love to see everyone in the UK being able to use it. Uh, our system, uh, our technology uh, for contactless, is now being used for uh, cities worldwide like New York, Boston, Sydney and Brisbane. Uh, so it's a good question to ask is, why is that the case, but we still can't use it in Birmingham or Manchester? Well, we'll get you back on the podcast to sp- speak more about that another time. But finally, the question of personal data. Now, some people I know don't register their contactless bank cards on the TFL website. I do, because it makes it easier for me to spot if I've been overcharged for not tapping out properly for example. Mm. So two questions for you before you go. Why should people register their details and what assurances can you give them that their data is safe? So uh, first of all, of course, it's totally personal choice whether you know you can travel without registering. Some people choose to, uh, such as yourself. With people who have a missing tap at the start or end of a journey, uh, we totally recognise that often that is a genuine mistake by the customer. And we actually, uh, the system tries its best to guess where you've been and sort that out for you. And that's one reason to register your card with a TFL online account is you can then see more easily when the system has done that and whether you need to take any action. Uh, and the second thing is really that you know you can, you can see all that journey history, the, the detail of it. But if you do need to make a, a claim for us for a refund when you've accidentally forgotten to tap in or tap out, that online account allows you to do that in a very simple and quick, quibble-free, trouble-free way. In, in terms of the data, uh, obviously we're, uh, as TFL, like everyone else, subject to the new GDPR regulations and tremendous care of, of all that personal data that's stored with us. Well, thank you very much there to Mike Tuckett of Transport for London. If you would like to read more about my journey into investigating the power of my contactless bank payments, my column last week in FT Money is available online now at ft.com slash money. Bobby Seagull, famous for battling it out with Eric Monkman on the BBC's University Challenge, is a self-confessed numbers man. He wrote a column for FT Money last weekend about why it pays to be pernickety with numbers, and he joins me now on the line to discuss. Welcome, Bobby. Hello, Claire. So, the subject of your ire and your latest column is football stadium signs. (laughs) Why is this? Yeah. Yes, grr. So I'm, I'm getting my angry face on. Can you imagine that angry seagull face? Okay, so this is a story. So if you go to any football stadium in the UK, the signs are currently, there's a brown sign with a football. But on the football, they're all uh, hexagons. And a couple of years back, Matt Parker, who's a um, sort of master public understanding fellow at Queen Mary in London, he spotted that these footballs are mathematically inaccurate because actually... On a real football, you know, imagine the classic black and white football. Yeah. You have hexagons and pentagons. And yet the street sign is all hexagons. So he thought, God, this is mathematically incorrect. So do you know what he did about this? I think you're going to tell me. <laughs> yes, I am going to tell you. It's like my teacher style. I'm like, I ask the kids a rhetorical question. But anyway, so he set up a petition to government to say, we need to change these signs 
because they're mathematically incorrect. And he garnered 20,000 signatures. So 20,000 people said, yes, Mr. Parker, I believe in you. I think we need to change these football signs. But sadly, the government turned it down, saying, you know, there are other more important things to do and it would cost too much money and it might distract road drivers they see a sign that's too mathematically complicated. That hasn't put you off because you say in your column that you're considering starting your own campaign to rebrand the combination bicycle lock. Why is this? Yes, so every time I park up my bike in Cambridge, I lock my bicycle using a code lock. But most people know these code locks as a combination lock. Mm. But actually, mathematically, combination is the wrong word. So again, if I told you, Claire, unlock my bike in Cambridge, uh, my code is one, two, three, four, it would unlock the bike. But if I gave you the code one, two, four, three, it clearly wouldn't unlock it. But actually in math, they're the same combination because they've got the same numbers, but just in a different order. And there's actually in math the word when the order matters, and it's called a permutation. So technically speaking, you know, I'm being a bit, I'm probably being very pernickety here, a uh, bicycle lock shouldn't be called a combination lock, but it should be called a permutation lock. Okay, well, I will give Halfords a ring after the podcast (laughs) is ended and tell them to uh, get their marker pens out. But in all seriousness, why does getting the numbers right matter so much to our personal finances? Yeah, I think we need to put, again, a bit of national context. Uh, The charity National Numeracy have shown that 50% of adults in the UK have the numeracy skills that we expect from an 11-year-old. And again, every time I hear that stat, I'm really shocked. Mm. Um, but why is this important? I think it's because Experian and National Numeracy actually did a study recently, and they show that there's a link between those people who have poor numeracy, which is clearly a lot of people, and having poor credit scores. Um, yeah, as we were hearing on the podcast earlier from Lindsay Cook. Yeah, so math is not just something which is a, you know, a nice skill to have, but actually numeracy impacts your ability and your, your financially manage yourself. And even things like teaser rates, the number of people in the UK that will get a teaser rate for, let's say, an insurer or a broadband. And then after this higher rate, people just think, oh, it's only a couple of percent different. They don't actually bother changing. So actually, numeracy um, and getting things right and paying attention to detail actually is something that can impact our back pockets and personal finances. Well, showing us always that the numbers matter. Thanks very much there to Bobby Siegel. You can read his FT column. To sum up, it pays to be pernickety online now at ft.com slash money. That's it from the FT Money Show this week. Thank you to all our guests and to you for listening. If you would like to get news updates on FT Money content, you can follow us on Twitter at FT Money. Or if you want to get in touch with us, perhaps suggest an item for the next show, then email us money at ft.com. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.